Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Paul Bananos, Associate Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On this week's pod, what's next for Novartis as it reorganizes? How Germany's Merck is shaping its pipeline following a few late-stage clinical disappointments. What to look out for at AACR, which finally kicks off this week. And we look ahead to this week's The BioCentury Show, which will feature Simone speaking with Jamie Rubin of EQRX. This episode of the BioCentury This Week podcast is sponsored by BioEquity Europe. Join us May 16 to 18 in Milan, Italy, as BioCentury's 22nd BioEquity Europe conference returns to in-person networking for the first time in three years. Schedule one-to-one meetings with more than 130 biotechs selected to present by BioCentury's editorial team. Debate strategies for navigating through the capital crunch and the industry's talent crunch over two plus days of strategic panels and workshops. Find your next investor, your next partner, or your next portfolio company at this exclusive C-suite event. We look forward to seeing you in Milan. Register today at bioequityeurope.com. Novartis, in its latest reorganization, the Swiss Pharma is planning to prioritize pharmaceutical products with multi-billion dollar sales potential. It also plans to task a new C-level hire to be a gatekeeper who determines which pipeline candidates will make the cut. Paul, you've tuned into the conference call. You've been digging into the announcement. Uh, What have you learned so far? Well, there, there is a lot going on. Um, so that there is a, re- a broader restructuring. They're um, eliminating the division between the Novartis Oncology Unit, which was created in 2016, with the rest of its uh, Novartis Pharmaceuticals in the Innovative Medicines Unit. And there are some personnel changes there, too. Uh, the oncology head is departing, and uh, they're drawing a line between the U.S. and international sides of the business to um, assist in and how they do their launches, it sounds like. That was my takeaway anyway from what the CEO, Vas Narasimhan, had to say. But um, I thought it was very interesting that they are going to try to emphasize high-value assets that they think will deliver $2 billion or more in annual sales as top priorities. And they have about 20 products in their pipeline right now that they think many of which could exceed that goal in in annual peak sales, $2 billion. The way that Voss put it during the call was, we've consistently won the race in the number of NMEs that they have entering the market. But he said, we want to win the race of the value per NME because that's a better marker for long-term success in the sector. And in doing so, they intend to fill an empty position that they've just created, chief strategy and growth officer. And that person, Voss said, will provide a voice in the room from outside, uh, you know, it'll be an external hire, uh, a new voice in the room that will help them say no to projects that aren't going to make the cut. Yeah, so a point about that, I really think that that's important. I think it's true in Novartis, it's true in all of the big companies and to some degree in the small ones, 
decision making, the ability for leaders to make decisions and then live with those decisions and not have factions inside the company saying, should we have done this? Should we not have done this? And I think what Baz has done here appears to me to, to say, we're going to have a structure that enables decision-making accountability, and it's going to flow from there. And it seems to be a more streamlined and simplified structure in their executive team, which is obviously what they were looking to do. Again, many of the really mega caps probably have a fair amount they could trim in SGNA. And I think, Paul, they looked at about a billion dollars, if I'm right, mm -hmm. in uh, wanting to, to trim that. Mm -hmm. Lauren, let me just turn to you here because it's clear that in uh, incorporating oncology into the more broad drug development division rather than sectioning it off, is there a signal there, do you think, from Novartis in how it's going to prioritize oncology? I don't know if I would call it a deprioritization, but when I read the press release, that was my first impression. We saw the company restructure in 2016 ahead of its CAR-T approval to break off oncology to give it its own attention. And now it's sort of reverting back from that. And they've dropped the president of oncology. I, I'm not sure what that means. It just means that it's potentially not as big of a focus. When I look over the numbers, so, you know, they had six products that generated more than $2 billion in 2021, and only one was a cancer drug. That was Tisigna, and it's been approved for a very long time. They've identified five key therapeutic areas, cardiorenal, neuroscience, immunology, solid tumors, and hematology. And the hematology spans both cancer and non-cancer indications. And they've got six drugs that they think are medium-term growth drivers um, that kind of span those therapeutic areas. Only one of them is a cancer drug, Kiskali, and the other five are, are generally outside that area. They did name two other recent launches that will contribute, but they don't regard either Semblix or Pluvicto, those two drugs, as uh, major growth drivers. So... Is oncology really receding into the background? I don't know. That's, it would be a little strong, I think, to say so. But it no longer constitutes one of the two major divisions within their innovative medicines unit. I think they'll be focused more broadly while still including and, oncology in the mix. Yeah. Another thing I thought was interesting or is interesting is the rehiring of Shiram Aradia as president of Global Drug Development and CMO. And he comes from uh, Dicerna, which is an RNA company. And notably, Novartis has not done a lot in RNA. It obviously has in the deal on Inclisiran, but internally, we've not seen a lot of RNA development. And obviously, in light of the success of RNA in COVID 19 therapies, you have to wonder whether that is an expertise that they were happy to bring in-house. Obviously, also, this is a rehire, so they know this leader quite well. And there's one more thing that I have to point out. At my tally, Paul, get me if I'm wrong, I just skimmed it. We have two women on the 11-person Novartis executive team. One person from that team will be leaving, John Sai, in May. I guess another will be joining but we're batting at about 20% there. There's an opportunity for that to have been changed. There's still an opportunity, Novartis, if you are listening. 
Indeed. And and um, and Sri Ram, by the way, does inherit the title of president of global drug development and chief medical officer from John Tsai, who's reportedly leaving to pursue other opportunities. All right. Thanks for that, Paul. For those who want to read Paul's story, and you know you want to, head to biocentury.com and you'll be able to check out his deep dive analysis on the changes at Novartis. Another European pharma is shaking things up. In the wake of setbacks for its high-profile TGF beta fusion protein program, Germany's Merck is rethinking its risk tolerance. Lauren, how is this showing up in the pharma's pipeline strategy? So I spoke with the CEO of the healthcare business. And he he talked about the impact that the Binterfuse Alpha clinical failures over the last year have had on his view of the pipeline strategy, the company's overall view. And the take-home was that this was a, a homegrown product that they brought forward with a huge phase two, phase three program. It spanned tons of cancer indications, um, lots of different combinations. And they made that decision based on some, some early clinical data. And he basically said that they're not going to do that again. That didn't work out in this case. Sometimes it does. We've seen it work out for a lot of companies. I, Amgen's a great example with what they're doing with their KRAS program, Lumapress. He said that the German Merck is not the right size company to do this as, as a big European biotech. And moving forward, they'll be focusing on programs where there's good clinical proof of concept in specific indications, but lower risk programs. So Lauren, that lead program that has not panned out for them is a TGF beta oriented one. And there are many other companies pursuing that target in a similar way. So do you think that augurs badly for those companies? Uh, any read throughs in? So this was the most advanced of the fusion proteins that were formed around the idea of combining a blocker of the TGF beta pathway with a blocker of the PD1 pathway. So combining the checkpoint inhibitor and the TGF beta blocker. I don't know if it's going to read through. I don't know that anyone knows. There are a lot of different ways that you can target TGF beta. It has a lot of different functions. This is, you know, one of the oldest cancer targets. And this combination breathes new life into the target. TGF beta has lots of different roles in cancer cells, but one of the important roles that it plays is in suppressing the immune system in the tumor microenvironment. So the thought was that if we combine this with checkpoint inhibitors, it's going to make checkpoint inhibitors more effective. And I don't know what will happen with the other programs. I know that there's been a lot of new investment and old investment into TGF-beta, and this was a big blow for the target. Well, I know that TGF-beta was like a huge target, even when I was doing my PhD, which is hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of years ago. So um, they've still not managed to get that target. I, I would run a mile, to be honest. But um, the other thing I think is very interesting is that, you know, as you say, strategically, they have decided to go for more solid, smaller bets rather than betting the farm on something big. You know, Merck Carga is one of these companies. It's a big farmer. It's an old farmer, but it's also not that big. It's smaller than some of the other ones. 
So interesting to see how they're sort of navigating this space and strategically, especially in light of what we heard about Novartis today, got to make you wonder if we're going to start hearing from more of the big farmers about strategic shifts or how to manage their pipeline. We'll be watching that. Yeah, to put, put it in context, uh, Merkaga had $20 billion in revenue, about $7 billion of that came from its healthcare business. And Lauren, in your story last week, you did call out an interesting deal they had recently with Devio Farm, another European biopharma, for a compound called Zavinapant. Can you tell us a bit about that program and whether we should expect them to do more in licensing deals? Yeah, so um, Peter Gunter said that this was a great example of the, exactly the type of deal that they would love to do, but it's the kind of deal that's incredibly difficult. So this, this was an IAP inhibitor. It had really strong phase two data in head and neck cancer and had already started a phase three trial. And he said that they, they basically convinced the company to do this deal with them and it had the right profile. He said those don't come around every day, but they're certainly looking for that type of deal. All right. Well, it's finally here. Exciting time of year. It's uh, the AACR conference will kick off on Friday. And that is, of course, the American Association for Cancer Research annual meeting. It will run through Wednesday the 13th. We've spent some time on the pod in recent weeks and of course in multiple analyses which you can find at biocentury.com. But Lauren with the conference now at hand, can you give us a quick recap? What are the hot trends at AACR we've been following and we're eager to get the, the details on in the coming days? Some of the things that we've covered include the CAR T cells and solid tumors that we talked about last week. My colleague, Danielle Golovin, wrote about IPS cells last week too, which I think is going to be really interesting to follow at the conference. It was really positive data from Fate Therapeutics with induced pluripotent stem cell-derived NK cells. That sort of kicked off this movement of using this type of stem cells to create immune cell therapies. It's a renewable and consistent source, and it's kind of just gradually branched out from just NK cells too. We're seeing lots of different immune cells come out of the iPS cells, you know, things that are hard to isolate from a patient's blood. And with the increased interest in allogeneics, off-the-shelf cell therapies, iPS cells may become increasingly important. So that's a really interesting story. Lauren, on the IPSC front, I forget exactly when that technology came forward, but it's a, a few years ago now, and it, it was very high profile. It also got a Nobel Prize, and yet I feel like we've been waiting for some really proof of principle for some really heavyweight application that these cells can deliver on their promise. Do you think these data sort of signal that we're getting to the point where we really might see that and get some clinical validation at some point for these iPSCs? Maybe. I think just with the amount of progress that's been made in the immune cell therapy fields in general, I think applying the iPS cells to things like NK cells, this could be what the field needs to really kick off. Um, it's been about 10 years. So, 
you know, there are a lot of concerns at the beginning that you're using these reprogramming transcription factors and they you could make a cell cancerous or something like that. I, I think the, the technology has come a long way. We've, we've well characterized the cells and um, yeah, everything's kind of converging, like the off the shelves, the NK, IPSCs, the technologies really complement each other. Cool. Anything else you're looking out for at the meeting? Yeah, so this week we will have our annual new targets analysis, and my colleague Karen Tkach-Tuzman will be looking at DNA damage repair. So we'll see what she comes up with. And we're also just looking forward to the late-breaking abstracts come out, which seem to be a really interesting group. They cover a lot of the things that we've been following at this meeting for years. Uh, myeloid cell reprogramming, the dual specific CAR-Ts that we've talked about. We're looking forward to the meeting starting on Friday. And of course, got to plug it. We will always have our new targets watch that people get very excited about finding new targets. So we try to identify those at BioCentury going through the abstracts and seeing which ones we're identifying for the first time in the translational capacity. Excellent. And, and that Nobel Prize 10 years ago, uh, 2012, I believe, to John Gurdon and Shinya Yamanaka for the discovery that mature cells can be reprogrammed to become pluripotent. Alrighty. Hey, this week, the BioCentury show is back and Simone is sitting down with Jamie Rubin of EQRX, a longtime Wall Street analyst whose name came up time and again in the uh, the coveted institutional investor rankings. Simone, what, what are you talking to Jamie about? Jamie is always interesting and informative to talk with. So we will be talking about EQRX's model, which is particularly interesting because they are trying to upend the pricing paradigm of drugs. Their goal is to get drugs to market at 50 to 70% discount to what they're normally sold at. And of course, you've got heavy hitters like Jamie Rubin in there. So the question is, how does this work? And importantly, because they have a PD-1 inhibitor, what are they saying about the recent developments at FDA regarding PD-1 inhibitors? But in addition to that, everybody would want to know what somebody like Jamie Rubin, who specifically Jamie Rubin, thinks about what the market collapse means for biotechs, for farmers, what we can expect to look for in the months, uh, let's hope it's not years, but months ahead through the bear market. And so she has some pretty interesting things to say. Excellent. And on biocentury.com, uh, a big story to catch up on if you missed it. Last week, FDA advisors found Amelix data to be beyond the limits of flexibility. That is the ALS therapy that is up before FDA. Uh, it was a six to four vote against the effectiveness of Amelix's therapy. And we'll have to see what's next. The, the decision is now in FDA's hand. Also, you'll find the latest crop of distillery items. We'll have senior editor Karen Takach-Tuzman on the pod next week to give you her highlights. And 
Of course, she'll be telling you all about our new distillery dashboard, which you can check out on our website. Thanks, Paul, Lauren, and Simone. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and Apple. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 